0: Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the July Atoms. We'll start as we have done more frequently than not over recent months with coronavirus. So many more questions, but at the same time so much knowledge gleaned in such a short time. So Covid continues appropriately to dominate the headlines, but while only weeks ago most literature was in the realm of speculative, we now have at least some robust data on which to base our advice and practice. And perhaps to invert a we also know more about what we don't know. And the breadth of this month's manuscripts testify to this. We have UK reference data, global health implications, and the WHO group. The arguments around school closure, the disappearance of children from emergency departments, and, this is the unexpectedly dystopian bit, the implications for chronic disease management using inflammatory bowel disease as a model. Despite the emergence of PIMS-TS, the Kawasaki-like inflammatory syndrome, no one would debate that children was relative resistance to severe infection. We still know very little about children and transmission, and we have no idea at all about the shape that the secondary effects, including breakdown of health systems, mental health, late presentation, child abuse being unidentified will take. And this is the largest of all the dark clouds currently hovering overhead. There's a long-held perception that skeletal growth rate has a more or less linear relationship with skeletal maturity, itself measurable by a number of radiological techniques based on extent of ossification. In an analysis of the Ohio-Fells longitudinal survey, Bowyer debunks some of the mythology around this association. During the study, participants had an average of 25 bone-age assessments and two distinct growth subgroups were demonstrated. Some participants underwent two periods of rapid growth, one in childhood and one in adolescence, while others only in a later one. The latter, however, embarked on their rapid growth phase much earlier, almost three years in boys and more than four years in girls. So a real case of pre-catch-up, catch-up growth, if you like. A major cause of disability globally, the prevalence of cerebral palsy in low and middle income countries is much harder to estimate. Later or non-presentation at health facilities and death before diagnosis are possible explanations, but detection is, in general, is certainly an issue. Duke uses key informant methods of identification with children with possible cerebral palsy through village volunteers in Cross River State, Nigeria, All were invited for confirmation of the diagnosis by a paediatric neurologist. About 70% of those children initially identified attended. Of those, 35%, about a third, had other pathology. Other than grading of severity of the cerebral palsy by the typical systems, the GMFCS gross motor and function classification system, and fine motor through the manual ability classification system, the history was probed for timing of likely causal event. Prevalence was estimated as 2.3 per thousand, a figure very similar to that in typical high-income countries possibly an underestimate of children who might have developed cerebral palsy had they survived the early perinatal insult. In the postnatally acquired group, severe malaria and meningitis accounted for the vast majority of postulated causes, but irrespective of the causes, the need to find children suggests that many are not receiving the essential paediatric, physiotherapeutic and nutritional input they require. We all follow complex children, and in the context of level of care, no one refute that they need more detailed supervision than their non-complex contemporaries. The problem, though, is that we all have different definitions of complexity. This issue, closely linked to their identification, is the starting premise of the first two installments of Joy Goff's miniseries, Cracking a complex problem, a narrative of the steps in the quality improvement on which she and colleagues had embarked. The early and fetal origins of life hypothesis has taken on many interesting turns since David Barker's first description of the association in the mid 1980s. One recent avenue is of chronic low-grade inflammation, poverty, and later chronic disease. Link between early exposure is now well established but has not been explored in adolescence. Fraga used data from the Portuguese Epitene cohort study using exposure data in the form of maternal and paternal education and occupation respectively as indicators of childhood socioeconomic conditions. High sensitivity CRP was measured at three points in time at 13, 17 and 21 years and categorized in tertiles separately for each wave. Chronic low-grade inflammation in adolescence was defined as having a CRP in the highest tertile in at least two of these waves. Adolescents with lower parental socioeconomic position had consistently low-grade inflammation even after adjustment for gender, perinatal and physical environment, health-related behaviours, and health status in adolescence. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the website on adc.bmj.com. Back soon with more. See you soon, bye for now.